0: And currently, we're working our way verse by verse through the first book of the Bible, Genesis. We're almost at the end of Genesis chapter 29. We're almost to Genesis chapter 30. Once we finish Genesis chapter 30, we're going to be three-fifths of the way through. That's 60% of the way through the book of Genesis. This is actually lesson number one hundred. So estimating then that means we'll finish up somewhere around 166. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Probably not quite that much. We spent a little extra on the first couple of chapters of Genesis, of course. But Genesis chapter 29, we're going to be picking up where we left off Today we're going to be in verse 27. This is right in the middle of a conversation or a statement being made by Laban. You remember last week, Laban tricked Jacob. Jacob's been the trickster all along, and now he's met his match. Laban got him. You'll remember that they had worked out an, a deal seven years earlier that Laban said, hey, you're working for me for nothing. You know, name your wages. And they worked out a deal that Jacob was going to work for the hand of Rachel. He found the younger daughter of Laban to be especially attractive. And so he decided, that's what I'm willing to do. I'll work for you seven years if I can marry your youngest daughter, Rachel. Well, seven years go by and he goes into Laban. and He says, give me my, my wife. And Laban doesn't say anything. He prepares a party. It's a wedding party. It's pretty clear it's a wedding party. The leaders in the community are invited over and whatnot. And uh, he ends up in his, uh, I guess, marriage chamber. And Laban brings the bride. And in the dark and under a veil and for whatever reason, maybe a lot of wine. (laughs) Ron's doing the sign Mm -hmm. for being a little tipsy, (laughs) a little drunk. Uh, however it may have happened He wakes up the next morning And it's not Rachel in bed next to him It's the older sister Leah mm-hmm. The wild cow instead of the youth lamb uh, As we were looking at their names mean from last time So he's confronted Laban He has said what is this that you have done to me and Laban gives this lame excuse, I'm sorry, maybe maybe I'm commentating a little too much there. It says, it must not be done so in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. And that was where we left off at verse 26. Verse 27, Laban is continuing to speak to Jacob there, and he makes a suggestion to Jacob. Would somebody mind reading Laban's suggestion to Jacob in verse 27? Fulfill we'll her week, and we will give you this one also for the service which you will serve with me still another seven years. Oh, okay. So mm-hmm. here's the presentation Laban saying, you know what? You know, it wasn't right that we would marry off the older before the younger. So, you know, I got this offer you can't refuse. Go ahead and do seven more years of work for me, and uh, we'll let you marry Rachel. But, you know, the marriage will be allowed before the seven years is up. You know, we'll let you have Rachel. and You just promise to work for another seven years for me, as if that makes everything okay. Have you ever been what you thought was at the end of a big ordeal, a big hard job, and you find out you're only halfway? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the proposal here. You thought seven years of hard labor, and I'm done. I get to marry the woman of my dreams. And you find out, you're only halfway done now. If you want to marry this woman, you've got to work another seven years. Yeah, that's a breach of contract. <laughs> that's a yeah, breach of contract yeah. right there. <laughs> yeah. I think he's got a case. I think he yeah. should pursue that. Mm-hmm. I mean, but when you start to think about it, what are some of his options? I mean, he doesn't have a whole lot of options. Some of the other things to look at as well, here in verse 27, it mentions, fulfill her week usually the wedding ceremony and the celebration that attended that was usually a week long it wasn't uncommon especially if you were from a well-to-do family it'd be a week-long celebration it might have been the first night it might have been the second night it might have been the third night who knows but it's still there's a duration a part of the week that's still left so he's advocating to jacob hey take leah and uh have your week with her you know because we got to finish out this week it's a wedding it's a ceremony part of the thing is it's a week long And the idea of a week-long celebration that had to do with marriage, some of the thoughts are that it had to do with recognizing God's hand in creation, that God created the heavens and the earth in seven days, six days and a day of rest, but seven days, and that in that week you also had, in the creation week anyway, new life coming forth, right? And so this seven-day period, new life coming forward, the idea was fulfill your your week with your bride, and hopefully you'll get her pregnant, and new life will come from this one week that you're going to be with her. And so that will seal the deal if Laban can not only get her married off, but also have her get pregnant, you know, um, that would be just icing on the cake for him. So we carry that over into our honeymoon. You know, it's not too different. You know, we've got this, you go away, you're, you're separated from the mundane tasks, and you've got this celebration, it's just you and your bride, and all the to-be grandmas want you to get on with it. I want to be a grandma, you know? And uh, so I guess it's not too different uh, nowadays as you see vestiges of that. You also see the the thing that's going on in here is that Jacob's got to wrestle with what is he going to do, right? What is he going to do? I suppose he could say no. He could say no to the deal, but we know he hasn't been interested in Leah. He's been interested in Rachel. So you've got this carrot dangling in front of him. Laban's dangling his youngest daughter in front of Jacob. Maybe you should uh, hang around. Do seven more years of labor for me and I'll give you the carrot you've been working so hard for. Uh, what about divorce? Maybe divorce is an option. Divorce is something we haven't talked about much. I'm sure that if there was anybody that was contemplating <laughs> if oh, divorce was an option, geez, perhaps Jacob was at that time. But divorce was handled differently back then than it is now. So when when is divorce an option? interestingly jesus was asked very much that same question go to matthew chapter 19 let's start there let's talk about divorce i got to tell you though i don't want to talk about divorce because just in talking about divorce there's so much pain you know we all have been affected by divorce my parents were divorced some of you have been through divorces Uh, Some of you, you know, you know a good friend that's been through divorce, and there's just no way to get through it without pain and anxiety, and it's grievous. It's never pretty. It's never pretty, I guess is the way to put it. But uh, let's talk about divorce. Matthew chapter 19, verses 3 through 9. Matthew chapter 19, verse 3, and the Pharisees also came to him, came to Jesus, testing him, saying to him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And part of the background in there, they're trying to trick him. That's the one thing you need to know. But among the Pharisees, there were two groups, and they they held two different ideas of when divorce was justifiable. Okay? So they're actually appealing to, now you've got to turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 24. Deuteronomy is the fifth book of the Bible, but keep your hands there in Matthew. We're going back there. All right? So Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4. So in the eyes and the minds of the Pharisees, this is the passage they are wondering about. They're wanting Jesus to make commentary on what you see here in Deuteronomy chapter 24. Deuteronomy 24, inspired by God, Moses writes down these words. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house... When she has departed from his house and goes and becomes another man's wife, if the latter husband detests her and writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who divorced her must not take her back to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance." that's the passage the pharisees are wondering which side is jesus going to fall on and the sides are this where you see there in verse one where it says and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her there's been a big debate by the time of jesus thousands of years after those words are penned by the time of jesus matthew chapter 19 the debate is this what is it that is considered back there as grounds for divorce Some uncleanness. What is that? So there was one group that maintained that it was only sexual infidelity, all right, that it was adultery or something seriously sexually inappropriate that would warrant divorce. And outside of that, no, divorce is not warranted. And the other group was like, no, you know what? It can be anything, even including messing up the meal. You can make your own commentary on that. I've had plenty of messed up meals, and I never felt that they were justifiable enough to say, forget it. I mean, literally, burning the toast, I read in one of the commentaries, was considered good to go. Grounds for divorce. Write out that certificate. Hand it over. So there were two camps. Even among the Pharisees, two camps. One said, no, only for sexual infidelity, and the other one saying, basically, any reason at all. So with that being the mentality and that being the two warring camps, they come to Jesus and say, well, what do you say? What do you say about the Deuteronomy passage without actually saying Deuteronomy? They're referring to the Deuteronomy passage, but they're coming to Jesus and their wording is what? Their wording is, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? So they want to know, which side are you are going to fall on? And it's a trap. They want to trap him. They want him to disenfranchise himself from one group or the other. Eventually, if they can continue to trap him with these questions, there's not going to be any, anybody left to be his supporters. That's what they're thinking. And then we can get rid of this guy. He's a thorn in our flesh. Let's see what we can do about getting rid of him. This is a nice tricky area. Let's throw this one on him. All right. So they want a discussion about divorce. Jesus recognizes any discussion about divorce has to also be a discussion about marriage. So here's his answer. Jesus gives the answer in verse four. And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, so then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. They're asking about divorce. They're wondering, can you divorce a woman for very few reasons or lots of reasons? What's his answer about divorce? Zero. There's zero. (laughs) He doesn't even give in to the the strict ruling. According to that answer, there's no reason. He doesn't give any reasons why you can get a divorce so far. Okay? He's actually referring to, go to Genesis now, chapter 2, verse 24. When you're wondering, what is he referring to there? He's actually referring to God's word. They would be familiar with this. So he's referring to Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, and it says this, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. I read verse 25 there as well. Verse 24, though, being the main passage that he's actually quoting. He's quoting from God's word, and instead of going to the Deuteronomy passage, he takes them to the Genesis passage. And in taking them to Genesis... Who does he pull into the equation as part of his answer? God, the creator. And he says, from the beginning, from this very beginning, God, the creator, his mind, his idea, his intentions were for marriage to be a man and a woman and for it to be lasting and permanent. That's his answer. So when they're saying, what about divorce? He's saying, God intended it to be lasting. End of discussion would be basically what he's saying there. So they end up saying in verse 7, so now jumping back to Matthew. Matthew chapter 19, verse 7 they said to him, why then did Moses command, I want you to notice that word, command, why did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? They interpreted Deuteronomy as a command. Mm-hmm. Jesus has a reply to that. He says in verse 8, he said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted. Notice, he took the command and he says, no, it's permitted. Because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives but from the beginning it was not so and i say to you whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery and whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery they're they're caught off guard and they're like whoa jesus just went way in a different direction than we thought he would let's ask him specifically then more about this deuteronomy passage well wait a minute jesus uh, it seems like you're avoiding the question we want you to answer specifically about deuteronomy And so he answers specifically about Deuteronomy, but he changes it. He says, you guys understand it to be a command to divorce. He says, no, it's not that strong. The language is not that strong. It's permitted. It's not demanded. It's permitted. So in cases where you have grounds for getting a divorce, it doesn't demand a divorce. It might permit a divorce, but it doesn't demand a divorce. His interpretation of it is what? Whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality. The Greek word behind sexual immorality there is porneia. Does that sound like any word we might have in, in the English language? <laughs> I'm sure that can cover quite a bit of stuff, right? Uh, pornography, probably one of the first ones that you would make an association with. And you would be right. You would be right. Pornia and pornography, closely related, in, not just in sound, but in the idea that it carries along with it. If we were to close our Bibles right now, and if I was to ask you right now, so Jesus says that the only reason you can get a divorce is adultery. A lot of people would say, yeah, I agree with that statement. Uh, but wait a minute. If you look at porneia, it's broader than that. When a person's married and they're having a sexual intercourse or sexual relationship with somebody they're not married to, that's adultery. When it's unmarried people, that's fornication. Okay, Fornication is included in porneia. When you bring up fornication, which would mean like two adults fornicating, then they split up essentially and go and marry other people they're essentially kind of adulterers. Yes. Wow. Uh, let me answer it this way. Let me back up a, a little bit. There's a discussion that I ran across in the, preparing for this study that had to do when it, when is a couple married? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And some of the people that are arguing when that happens. I mean, we were like, why is that even a discussion? You go in, before the guy who wears the fancy clothes, and he declares you married, and you're married. But in this setting, that's not necessarily the way it worked. All right. And so the discussion was, when is a couple married? And it came down to one good, strong argument can be made once there's sexual intercourse. Between two people, sexual intercourse, that in the eyes of God, that that could satisfy, that could consummate a marriage, whether or not you have the formalities of the clergy and the paperwork and the signatures of the witnesses. That's Jacob's situation. And that's Jacob's situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you've got a marriage based on the, that argument at that point. And so whether or not they're fornicators in the sense that they're not married together or adulterers, they're not married together. Having that sexual union is such that it's a marriage. Uh, if you go back and you look at the Genesis passage, right? We were looking at Genesis, Genesis chapter two, verse twenty-four. Genesis two twenty-four. Let's look a little closer at that wording there. Genesis two twenty-four. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined, be joined to his wife, and we're thinking, oh, that's a quaint way of saying having sexual intercourse. Be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. That sounds like more than just a quaint way of saying sexual intercourse. It sounds like there's a gluing together of sorts, okay? Uh, The other day, my my youngest daughter, she wanted me to fix something for her, and it required the use of super glue. So I went, and I got the super glue, and sure enough, it always happens. I got super glue between my two fingers, and my fingers were joined together and her little crap thing that was in between my fingers was there, too. All right. <laughs> so uh, she had never seen that before. And I so I made a mention of it. I go, oh, look at my fingers. And she goes, oh, what happened? And I go, they're glued together. And she goes, oh, come on. And she ripped out the piece that was being glued. And she got that successfully, but I was still glued together. And so she started to tug on my finger. And I know how this is going to end because I've been here before. All right? So she's tugging on my finger, and then she's pulling on both of them, and she realizes this is pretty strong stuff. And I go, that's why it's called super glue. And then she finally pulls it apart, and I, I didn't even need to look, and I looked at it, and I go, oh, yep, there's a piece of the skin over here that used to be over here. And she's like, what? And she feel, And sure enough, she can feel the piece of skin that had ripped off of this side and was over on this side now because it was glued it was joined it was one flesh it isn't pretty when you pull apart one flesh Mm -hmm. it doesn't look nice after you're done it's not it's just not easy in fact this word for divorce over in in, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 24 verses 1 through 4 when Moses says if you're going to divorce this person you give them a certificate of divorce the word that's used there for divorce is the same word that's used for cutting down trees It's even the same word that's used for beheading. In fact, I want to read to you the definition as given by one of the commentators that I saw. This is Walter A. Elwell. Walter A. Elwell says, The word divorce in the phrase bill of divorcement is related to the word for hewing down trees, even cutting off heads. It indicates the severing of what was once a living union divorce then is a kind of amputation it cannot happen without damage to the partners concerned and the reason it's so painful and the reason that it's so ugly and everybody gets hurt is because god told us there would be a union there would be a joining a one play a two becoming one thing going on and you can't take one and separate it back out into two separate parts and have it look pretty at the end (laughs) It's a tearing, it's a ripping, it's it's painful and it's hard. Like I said, that's part of the reason that this was a a difficult topic that we were going to be embarking on today. So you've got that discussion about divorce and whether or not divorce was even an option. According to Jesus, Jesus intended that divorce be something that was permanent. Uh, Turn to 1 Corinthians. Let's look at Paul's idea of divorce. Paul's answer to when is divorce appropriate. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we're going to be looking at verses 10 through 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 10 through 15. By the way, chapter 7 has a lot of good information having to do with marriages and relationships. But here we have in verse 10, Now to the married I command, yet not I but the Lord, a wife is not to depart from her husband, but even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife. But to the rest, I, not the Lord, say, if any brother has a wife who does not believe and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. But if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. According to these verses right here, it sounds like Paul would say that there is another time when divorce would be permissible, and that is a relationship where somebody is an unbeliever and they leave. But does it leave physically? Is it leave emotionally? Is it leave sexually and that you would deprive your partner of a sexual relationship that you're supposed to be able to have? Any comments along those lines here? Don't deprive each other of that kind of relationship. So there's all kinds of discussions that have to do with what does that mean? But it does look like Paul is actually giving us a glimpse into what he understands God's word to say, that sometimes divorce is a last resort that sometimes is necessary i'm hesitant even to use the word necessary because like we read in those words he encourages them to stay together even if it seems to have been a breakdown they're willing to stay together paul's admonishment paul's advice is stay together but he recognizes that we live in a fallen world and that there are going to be people that abandon their spouse physically by leaving or physically by withholding sex or maybe detaching emotionally Perhaps those could be included in what Paul would say are reasons for divorce. It's hard to say without much discussion. Mm -hmm. Esther, you look like you want to say something. I mean, it's interesting because essentially Jacob could have just said, oh, well, I'm going to go live in this other tent. You live here, and I'm going to be married in a week to the woman of my dreams, and I'll just live with her. And poor Leah could have just been basically a living widow who couldn't have married anybody else. Yeah, you're exactly right. And in fact, a lot of what you just said, I think we're going to see glimpses of happening as we start to read through the next chapter. It's an awkward relationship they have, this married to the person I didn't really want to get married to. A lot of times marriages were prearranged. A lot of times they were alliances made for business purposes or they had financial incentives behind them in the sense that Laban wants to marry her off so he doesn't have to take care of her. You know, for whatever reason, if she's not attractive, he can trick Jacob into marrying her. Hey, she's off my hands. I don't got to keep her on the payroll, you know, and uh, it's all Jacob's problem now. And, uh, yeah, that's not going to work. And we're going to see that in a few verses. You're exactly right. But Polygamy was kind of implied in here. Oh, good question. Yeah, good observation. Polygamy is implied in here. Let's go back and look at that. Genesis, back to where we were. Genesis chapter 29. So we're going to be looking at polygamy in just a few moments here. Before we get too far afield, though, I do want to mention another place. Why, why is divorce uh, such a complex and troubling topic? As you read through the Bible, I mean, I wish I could say it's very clear. And in some places it is. Jesus seems to suggest it's sexual infidelity of some sort. Paul seems to suggest maybe it's a little broader than that. And these are New Testament passages. What about an Old Testament passage that might have something to say about divorce? I mean, we are looking at Jacob. This is an Old Testament passage. Let's look at an Old Covenant passage. How about this one? Malachi 2.16. That's exactly right. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. Or the Old Covenant, Malachi chapter 2, verse 16. I wish God would make it clear how he feels about divorce. Let's look at verse 16. Somebody mind reading that? The Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce for it covers one's garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. Excellent. Thank you, Mike. So what's God's feeling about divorce? He hates hates divorce. That's strong language. Why does God hate divorce? Why does God hate divorce? Here's why. God uses the marriage relationship. To serve on this earth as a picture of the relationship he intends to have with us. God is not going to divorce us. And so he doesn't want us to think that marriages can be broken just as easily as they can be made. He doesn't want us to get comfortable with the idea that it's not a lasting union. God intends for his union with us to be a lasting union. Turn to Ephesians chapter 5 ephesians new testament 5 chapter 5 verses 31 and 32 this is paul again writing to the church in ephesus he is quoting the same passage from genesis chapter 2 that we've already seen jesus quote in the discussion with the pharisees and we've already seen paul bring up as well when we had that earlier discussion over in first corinthians chapter 7 here we are in ephesians chapter 5 verses 31 and 32 Paul says, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And we go, yeah, I get that. He's talking about marriage. Man, a woman, God intended to be lasting and permanent. He's talking about marriage. Oh, but look at verse 32. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. All along, Paul is saying all along, from the very beginning, from Genesis chapter 2, that was intended to serve, that marriage between one man, one woman, a bride and a groom, lasting union never to be dissolved that is what God intends us to see as our relationship the closest thing we have on earth to our relationship with him that he intends to be that faithful spouse to us that he would never divorce us but even as I say he would never divorce us there's some weird passages in our old covenant that actually have God saying I divorce you to his followers to his people and you go how does that work (laughs) right Here's what you had. You had had Israel. And the children of Israel were God's people. They were God's followers. They were the spouse. They were the bride. He's the groom. They left him. They committed adultery. They committed fornication. And In fact, the whole book of Hosea is about this. You read through the book of Hosea, and it's just this weird thing. God is telling Hosea, okay, I want you to pick her, but she's going to cheat on you, but I want you to take her back. (laughs) Poor Hosea. i got to imagine. He's like, really? Do I have to be the object lesson for this one? (laughs) Can't you pick somebody else? Can I have the Song of Solomon, please? You know, (laughs) I see him being in a place where that was just probably a really hard burden to bear where he had to be this picture living it out as to the unfaithfulness of God's people repeatedly turning away from him, and he at one point divorcing them but taking them back and in fact taking them back not reluctantly but with love and comfort and that i've got to think has to do with what paul said where we were looking in first corinthians chapter seven did you notice that one part where paul said if she leaves if the marriage is broken up let them be reconciled that there's a possibility of a marriage broken up being brought back together the reconciliation there we sometimes miss that in fact, let's go look at it again, just to make sure that we're looking at the same thing. We're all thinking about the same thing. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 11. Somebody mind reading that one? But even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife. Excellent. Thank you, Mike. So there you have it. She is to remain unmarried or to be reconciled. I think Paul's putting that in there because he sees the big picture, that that's how God treats us. That's how God treats his followers, his people. He knows that they commit acts that are worthy of divorce. But then after that, you see a reconciliation where God says, come back. And God takes them back. He doesn't have to, but he does it anyway. That God is willing to take us back. We've all committed acts as the bride in the relationship with him as the groom. We've all committed acts that are justifiably enough for him to say, forget it, enough is enough, you're out. But instead, what does he do? In our unfaithfulness, he takes us back. Isn't that amazing? Doesn't that testify to something about God's relationship and his desire to have us to be a part of him? And this goes all the way to the end of the Bible. This goes all the way through the book of Revelation. When you look at the book of Revelation, you've got the bride and the groom and the marriage supper of the lamb. Who's the bride? It's his followers, it's his people, it's the church. It's the church. The followers of God are the bride, and the groom is Jesus. And there's the marriage supper of the Lamb. He intends to see this through all the way to the end. We're in the betrothal period right now where we are pledged to him. And we're looking forward to the day when it's going to be finalized, and we'll get to be with him forever. But in this in-between time, what is our conduct to be? It should be not getting our garments stained. (laughs) All right, It should be honoring him. So the ideal is what? When it comes to divorce, I want to read this particular section that I ran across in one of the commentaries. And this is, again, from uh, Walter A. Elwell. He says, The argument thus far is that two principles need to be held together. On one hand, the divine ideal, the divine ideal is that marriage should be permanent, should be lasting, should be between one man, one woman. That's the divine ideal. For the permanence of the marriage relationship as a covenant partnership of personal, quote, one flesh communion growing by the grace of the Spirit, to be increasingly, in fact, what it is initially an intention, and on the other hand, a recognition that when breakdowns occur, all attempts at reconciliation having failed, in some circumstances caused by what Jesus called hardness of heart in Matthew 19:8, divorce as a concession may be a permitted last resort. So you've got the ideal. Jesus Jesus gives the ideal. When he's put in that place where he's asked to pick a side, and they say, divorce for this one reason only or for lots of reasons, he doesn't pick a side. He says, the divine ideal is that one man, one woman forever. But the reality is something else as well, that he recognizes that we're all frail. We all make mistakes, and sometimes we end up in ugly positions and ugly places, and that As our model of our relationship with God, he intends for marriage to be the model that says, This is going to be lasting and permanent. This is going to be forever. I'm not going to leave you. But he also recognizes we make mistakes and he's willing to take us back. Now, Javier said this also talks about polygamy. So we got to go back to Genesis chapter 29, verse 28. Genesis chapter 29, verse 28. Javier is exactly right. Because where's Jacob? What are his choices? He could get divorced. No, he can't. Mm-hmm. Actually, he can't. Because this is family, right? This isn't a stranger. This is the brother of his favorite parent, his mom. This is her brother. So you've got that dynamic going on. Esther's like, that's not enough. <laughs> that's not enough. No, it is. But he still loves Rachel, and so he wants her if he divorces exactly. her, he her sister. And you've got that going on as well. Because if he says no to Laban, he doesn't get Rachel. So if he wants Rachel, he's got to say yes to this deal that Laban's proposing. Uh, you've also got the idea that a divorce back then was actually very expensive because you provided a dowry. Those seven years, lost. So you would have worked seven years and you don't get a wife out of it. He was sent there to get a wife, <laughs> right? So he could just agree to the deal and have two wives at the end of it. Not that that's a good thing, but <laughs> I mean, that's probably one of the things he's got to look at. And... If he says no to the deal, not only does he lose Rachel, he shames Leah and brings down the wrath of Laban. All right. So there's all kinds of reasons why he can't say no to this. He doesn't have any leverage. He's in a place. He's got to say yes. So what do we see in verse 28? Then Jacob did so and fulfilled her week. So he gave him his daughter, Rachel, as wife also. So it looks like he gives Rachel to him right away. Unfortunately for Rachel, it looks like she doesn't get a wedding. Leah got out of the festive occasion. In Jacob's mind, that was all for him and Rachel. And at the end of the day, it was all for him and Leah. And then after the week is over and all the guests have staggered out to their own homes. <laughs> oh, and here's Rachel. Um, have a good time. Be blessed. <laughs> Poor Rachel. I've I got a feel for Rachel there. Uh, Laban makes out in two ways. He gets seven more years of, of labor and he's married off both of his daughters. So he gets he gets through with it in two ways right there. Verse twenty nine and Laban gave his maid Bilha to his daughter. Rachel has a maid. Bilhah, you remember Zilpah? She was the maid that was given when Leah was given. So you have Leah, the oldest daughter of Laban, and her maid, Zilpah. And now you've got Rachel, the one he loved all along and wanted to get married, and she comes with a maid as well, named Bilhah. So these are names you're gonna to want to know about. More women yes, more to women. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. More women he has to support. So we're up to four. All right. So we've got two wives and and two maids. All right. And you'll find that a maid isn't just about cleaning the house, uh, as we'll get into the other verses. All right. They're French (laughs) maids? Caught me a little off guard there. (laughs) Uh, Verse 30 Then Jacob also went into Rachel, and he also loved Rachel more than Leah. Oh, dear. Have we run into favoritism yet so far? You'll remember that his dad favored Esau. And his mom favored Jacob. And how did that work out? That wasn't pretty. That didn't work out well, did it? And so here we have favoritism. Apparently he didn't learn much by the favoritism back at home. He's picking favorites as well. Loved Rachel more than Leah, and he served with Laban still another seven years. Here we do have polygamy. Polygamy is the marriage to more than one spouse. We have Jacob, and he's married to two women, Rachel and Leah. Uh, and it's a, this is actually a subcategory of polygamy. It's called polygyny. And it's actually a man married to two women, all right? So a man married to two women, a subcategory of polygamy in general. Uh, sometimes you had in some cultures where a woman can marry more than one man. In this case, we have polygamy. It's a man marrying two women. And in fact, being married to two sisters is pretty rare. In fact, by the time you get to Leviticus, it's outlawed, all right? So at this time, there wasn't any specific prohibition against it. But by the time Moses pens Leviticus, God instructs him to write down, no more marrying sisters, all right? That's not a good idea. <laughs> J. Vernon McGee says regarding polygamy here, and by the way, polygamy is something that we run across. We're going to run across more as we go. And in fact, it's something that you see throughout the history of the Jewish people up to the exile, which is like 586 BC. So you're talking thousands of years in the records. You're going to run across polygamy in several places. You have David, You have Solomon, Solomon, probably the king of polygamy. (laughs) I mean, hundreds of wives and concubines. Uh, So uh, a lot going on there. Anyway, regarding polygamy, J. Vernon McGee says this in very simple practical terms. He says, you may be thinking, well, since this is in the Bible, God must approve of polygamy. No, God does not approve of everything that is in the Bible. That may startle you. For instance, God did not approve of the devil's lie. God didn't approve of David's sin and he judged him for it. But the record of both events is inspired, literally. God breathed. In other words, God said through the writer Moses exactly what he wanted to say. The thing that is inspired is the record of the words God gave to Moses to write down in this book we call the Bible. In Genesis 29, God gave an accurate record. Jacob did have two wives, and it tells us the way it came about. That is where inspiration comes in. It does not mean that God approved of everything that is recorded in the Bible. Certainly God disapproved of Jacob's having more than one wife. And then Matthew Henry says this, As yet there was no express command against marrying more than one wife. It was in the patriarchs a sin of ignorance. But it will not justify the like practice now, when God's will is plainly made known by the divine law in Leviticus 18.18, and more fully since by our Savior, that one man and woman only— must be joined together as we read in first corinthians chapter 7 verse 2 so yes you're exactly right it does talk about polygamy and even though that it does mention polygamy it doesn't mean that god is sanctioning or condoning polygamy so where does that leave us well we've talked about divorce and that was probably the main thing that we ended up talking about today So where do we go from here? I think what we need to recognize is, number one, we need to recognize that we should be instructing our youth that are not married yet in the ways that God looks at marriage, that God holds it as something that's a model of the relationship that he wants to have with us, and that it's something more serious to be entered into than just whimsically and, hey, let's jump in the car and go to Las Vegas and get married, you know, that we should be instructing our youth that they have an adequate understanding of what God's word teaches about marriage. We should also be encouraging healthy marriages in the families around us. If we're in a church setting, we should be encouraging the healthy marriages in our church. We should also be in a place where we're not uncomfortable nurturing struggling marriages. And we need to be careful about how we do that. We should not be picking sides and we should be careful. If you're a man, you shouldn't be encouraging the woman (laughs) and the woman encouraging the man. But we should have a ministry in our churches where we're encouraging people in struggling marriages to recognize they're not alone, that this isn't out of the ordinary and try to see that there be a reconciliation if at all possible. We also need, number four, to recognize that even though it's not demanded, sometimes divorces do occur. And in those situations, we need to recognize that we should be in a position of binding up wounds, not casting more stones. Divorce is not the unforgivable sin. And sometimes we treat it like that. Sometimes we take people in our, in our minds that are in our congregations and that they've been through a divorce and all of a sudden we shun them and they don't feel included or, or welcomed anymore. We need to be careful about that and recognizing maybe uh, we have a participant in that relationship. They didn't want divorce at all. They should not be in a place where they don't feel welcome anymore in our congregations or in our family. And then finally, we should recognize sometimes, and this is not specific to divorce, but you have marriages that are broken up by death. You have widowers or widows in a situation where we need to be able to be in a place where we can say, what can I do for you? And you provide a ministry to folks that are in that position as well. Not everybody's happily married in the church setting. In fact, very few are. And we need to recognize that we have an area of ministry where we need to we need to be reaching out and, and taking people by the hand and, and helping them through those difficult times. All right. So with that, let's go ahead and close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, for the challenges you give us. We pray, God, that you would help us not to be content to just look at our own pretty little world and uh, ignore everything that's going on around us in struggling relationships or in situations that uh, we don't want to touch because it's too messy. But help us, Lord, to reach out. Help us, Lord, to have comforting and welcoming hearts, Lord, the hearts and attitudes that you would have towards us. Help us to be that extension, Lord, to others that are hurting. Help us, God, to be in a situation where we know your word. Help us to hunger and thirst for your word and Help us not to be satisfied, but to continually hungering and craving more, and that uh, we would grow in our understanding of who you are and your character, your nature, and how you treat us, how you behave, and how you feel about things like this, Lord. We pray that you would help us to be well-informed as to uh, your position on these matters. Thank you, God, for not giving up on us. Thank you for having welcoming (coughs) arms extended to us who are your spouse, though soiled. We pray that you would cleanse us, Lord, and take us to be with you forever. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Have a great week.